new opportunities. I said this morning at the first service at 8.15, I said, I hope your New Year's off to a good start. And then I thought, yeah, it's about eight hours old. So uh, if it's not, it's really, really been rough. Um, but, uh, and it could have been for some people that are probably not here this morning. Uh, but uh, it is... <laughs> It is, it is good to see you and, and to start this new year together. I'm curious, I've asked every service, how many of you made it up to midnight last night? How many of you? All right, there's a lot of you. I'm impressed. It's been about, I think, about 50% of this. Even at 8.15, half the, the, and, and half the congregation had been up to, uh, till midnight. And so I was, I was kind of, you know, just kind of curious to see. And, and there have been a few 815 people that have gravitated into other services this morning. And I can, I can appreciate that too. I'm going to call her out. Cassie this morning, my daughter was like, or last night, she's like, dad, I'm going to 11 o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> That's all right. That's okay. Not a problem. Sleep, sleep where you can, but uh, it is good. I, we did our, we did make it up till midnight too, barely. Uh, we were, Tony and I and the kids were at Eric and, and Jen's house last night. We left before midnight, so we were home. We left about 11, I think, but we did stay up for the new year. And I'm not exaggerating when I say it wasn't three minutes after the new year. I was in bed and probably pretty close to asleep by that point. But, uh, but it is, and it's, it's, a, you know, it's always a time of, of great optimism and, and, and looking forward and, and kind of projecting into that new year. And I know some, some people do New Year's resolutions or New Year's goals. And if you do, yeah, it's a great time, as good a time as any to do that. Uh, you know, I, I was lamenting, and I got no sympathy, and I know I won't now, how our, uh, our, our goals change as the years go, and we start looking forward. This year, what I'm thinking about is my objectives for the new year is I need to get my vision tested um, because I'm, I'm having a harder time reading the back projector on Sunday mornings, and I need to get my knee looked at because that's starting to hurt, and I was just kind of moaning my my challenges, and I got no sympathy there, and I know I'm not getting any from you either, so, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it, it changes, but it's still, still a good time, a great, great day to be together, and to worship, and begin this, but all of that said, as we, as we kind of start to move beyond the, the, the celebration of Christmas, and move into, to new directions, and, and start to focus on new parts of the, the, the story of our faith, um, I want to kind of hold on for one more Sunday, to, to the Christmas story. I'm going to hold on for one more Sunday to part of the, the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And I want to give a few moments for us to reflect on a part of the story that we don't think a whole lot about. Part of the story that we don't talk a whole lot about for very good and understandable reasons. But, um, you know, we, we have the, the, the the bumper stickers that, that we sold here at the church a few years ago, or you've seen all over the place, and there's signs in people's yards, uh, keep Christ in Christmas, right? keep, which is that reminder that the heart of Christmas, the center of the, of the celebration, is Jesus. And, and for most of us, it's, it's not a, I, I don't think the challenge is to keep Christ in the story. I think we, we all do that. It's to keep Christ at the center of the story, the center of the celebration. Because sometimes other things start to take that place. That becomes our challenge. And, but but the, the center focus is on Jesus. That's what, that was Christmas, and that's what we celebrate. And then the characters begin to radiate out from Jesus, begin to kind of move out that way. We have, you know, and, and actually you, you can look at a, nar- a nativity like we have here, many of us have in our homes, and we can begin to, to remember the characters that are part of the story with Jesus in the middle. 
And then you've got Mary and Joseph right, right next to Jesus because of that um, integral, important role that they play uh, in, in the, the story of Jesus and, and, or the birth of Jesus and then, of course, and even his life. And then you've got the shepherds. Remember that the angels appear and they, they arrive on the scene to worship God and, and their, their inclusion odd inclusion into the story and that's a sermon into itself the fact that they were the ones that received the announcement of this birth and so they're there in our nativity and and then you kind of come this direction you've got the wise men the magi that are there and and we know from the scriptures and we'll talk about this a little bit they weren't there the night of we kind of include them in but they're part of the the story that surrounds the the birth of jesus and they're an important player if you will in the story and i've even seen some nativities that have an innkeeper off to the side, you know, even though that role is, is very minor, it's actually, there is no, there actually is no innkeeper in the story. You know that, right? In the Gospels, there is no innkeeper. This is kind of one of those trick questions. We know it from the stories we tell, but the only thing the Gospels say is that he went to the, the you know, she gave birth in a, in a stable, in a manger, because there was no room in the inn. Actually, the innkeeper, we kind of include him and make him a part of the story to explain that. So we've got these characters. But there's a character that is part of the story that you never see in our nativity scenes. He wasn't there on the night of. But, but when, when children tell the story, there's usually not room for this character, understandably. And that person is Herod. Herod's a part of the story. But not a part of the story we warmly embrace for very, very good reasons. But let's talk a little bit about Herod and what do we learn about God through, through Herod's role in the story. And so we're going to pick this up at Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. And this is what we read. It says, when they had gone, now, again, context, who's they? The Magi, the wise men. When they had gone. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. The language matters. Escape, not go, not vacation, not travel down for sightseeing. Escape to Egypt. There's threat here. There's danger here. It says, stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Friends, sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, this is your word, but this is a hard word. This is a painful word. Help us to understand that even... Here we can learn more about you and be challenged and inspired and, and moved in faith and obedience. So speak to us now through these moments, through your word, through our worship. We pray in Christ Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. So the, I don't even want to say the forgotten character, because he's not forgotten. He's pushed aside. That's Herod. We, we would really rather not have to deal with Herod when, when kids get up and do their pageants. We, nobody's clamoring to play Herod. I, I had a conversation last, yesterday with uh, a family that was out at, in the church field, and they had their, their, their children out there, and they were playing, and, and it was kind of a uh, random conversation. But as we were talking, they had shared with me that um, they had years ago, long before I'd been here, but they had attended this church, and that their children, and, and, and Joe, you could kick out of this, that their kids had once been baby Jesus in the living nativity. And, uh, and they were talking proud about that. Yeah, we want our kids. Yeah, yeah, be Jesus. Jesus is cool. Be Jesus. Nobody's going to be bragging. Yeah, my kid got to be Herod. Nobody wants to be Herod. We don't want to include that part of the story. Now, we do in the living nativity. We include Herod, and if you come to that, there is. And, and Jimmy Rackey, many of you know, Jimmy plays Herod. Jimmy's one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet, and he plays the worst character in the entire thing. <laughs> and, and that's kind of what me got, got me thinking about Herod, because in that, uh, we, we tell part of the story there. And, and Lori, his wife, Lori Rackey, who, who does the, the, the narration for that scene, she's, um, she kind of ad-libs a little end of the story when the, when the groups are leaving, and she talks about just how bad a guy Herod was, just how evil a guy, and that's not actually the language she uses, but, but just how, how awful a person that he was, and, and he was. In every sense of the word, there's just no reason we want Herod in the story. So what we do is we tell the part A of the story, that plays in, and that is that the Magi, the wise men go, and they, they've stopped at the palace with Herod on the way looking for the child, thinking they could get some assistance in, in, the, the, in finding Jesus. And Herod hears about the, the birth of this child that's been prophesied, and um, he's immediately threatened by it, because it, it's a threat to his power. It's a threat to his authority. It's a threat to his, he's thinking the way the world thinks. If a king has been born... That's a threat to me. So he tries to use the Magi to his advantage. Well, go, find the child, come back and tell me where he is so I can come and worship him. And of course, we know he had no intention of worshiping the child. His intentions were, were, were far more hostile and, and evil. So the Magi go and they find the child, but they know. They're smart. They recognize Herod's up to no good. So, so it says, and, and in our telling of the story, that when they left, Jesus, when they left the mother and, and the child and Joseph, that they went back to their own country another way. They took a bypass, is what they did. So they would not encounter Herod. They would not have any um, pressure to, to reveal where the child was. And that's where our story ends. And then, okay, let's, that's enough of Herod. Sadly, that's not where the Gospels end. Because we have this story in Matthew chapter 2 of what happens next. And it's called the slaughter of the innocents. And it is not a happy story. And it is, I mean, it's just, it's pure evil that Herod, so threatened by the thought that this child could be born, sends out his soldiers to execute, to kill every child, male child under the age of two in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. I mean, it's just, it's unsettling for us. It's absolutely unsettling for us. And it is completely in character with who history tells us Herod was. You know, Lori would kind of do this narration and she'd talk about Herod being a bad dude. 
And I started thinking, I, I know that too. I remember some of my Bible history. But I thought, you know, I don't remember exactly what bad dude meant. I mean, what were the specifics? So I went back and kind of did a, a refresher. Herod had, in the course of his life, um, well, let me back up. First of all, you've got to understand, Herod was a puppet king. He was a puppet king. And, and what I mean by that is Rome ruled the area of Palestine and, and Israel. Rome had authority. And what Rome would do is they would leave these Jewish kings on the thrones in this kind of tradition of, of their history, but their role was to do exactly what Rome told them to do. You know, they, they was, uh, you ever remember having, um, did teachers when you were in school would, would walk out of the room and they'd leave somebody to take names? Do you guys remember doing that? Do you guys remember that? The, the, the most unpopular kid you would become if you were the name taker. You know, if anybody misbehaved, you wrote their name. That's an awful thing to do to a kid. Um, just alienate them from everybody. But the idea is there was some sense of authority, but there really wasn't. You were just to report to the teacher if somebody got out of line. Your job was to keep, to be the, the, the stick, if you will, to make sure everybody behaved. That's what Herod was. To keep everybody, and his power, his position, his comfort, if you will, was based on keeping everybody in line so Rome didn't have to deal with him. And he loved his role. And so he was kind of this, this puppet king, but he was awful in every sense of the word. He had, over the course of his life, nine wives. Nine. That's a lot. Um, I could say one's a lot, but then it would get me in trouble. <laughs> Nine's a lot. So, uh, nine wives, 14 children that we know of, and probably many more we don't because the names of the girls often weren't recorded in, in the annals of history. So he had nine, or he had 14 children. And it wasn't good to be a wife or a child of Herod. Uh, the, the wife that history tells us that he loved the most was Miriam. It was the second wife, Miriam the, uh, the first. It's never good when you're the first. That means there's a second coming. And, um, and he had her executed because he was afraid she was having an affair. He was afraid that she was plotting against him. So he had her tried, found guilty, kind of a um, kangaroo court kind of thing, and um, had her executed. History tells us that he mourned her loss for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Hello, um, but, but that's, that's what we learn about. And then the chief witness against his wife was her mother because she was afraid of losing her life. And then in a twist of history that just speaks to her lack of intelligence, she tried to usurp power from Herod, saying he was unfit, which is probably true, but that wasn't a smart move on her part, and she didn't even get a trial before her, ex before her execution. Okay, so this is what we're talking about. Two sons that he had with Miriam that he became threatened by, and he sought to execute them. Caesar, who had the power, found out about it and said, you cannot execute your sons. Kind of good advice, don't do that. But he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be thwarted. So a few years later, when Caesar's taken up a collection to help put on like these Olympic games, these games he wanted to reinstitute in the Roman world, Herod says, I'll contribute. I'll give you some wealth. I'll give you some money if... You let me execute my children. And he did. Two sons executed. Caesar is quoted as having said, it is better to be Herod's dog than to be one of Herod's sons. Yeah, good guy. Later, he would name a son from another wife as his successor. Herod Antipater. He said, you will be my successor. And then he got threatened by him. And he had him executed. 
Again, at that point, Caesar, historically tells, history tells us, Caesar said, you cannot name anybody else's successor. You cannot do it. And after his death, his kingdom, if you will, was separated into thirds, and three of his sons ruled over the three parts of the kingdom. One of those sons was um, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas would be the one who Jesus would stand before, before he would go and see Pilate, before his execution and crucifixion. So, so why am I saying this? This guy, was he, and he just becomes an embodiment of evil, of, of just uh, brokenness isn't even the right word. I mean, his inclusion is incredibly unsettling. And then we get to this part of the story, which is tragic and heartbreaking. That his insecurity, that his fear, that his paranoia would lead him to say, not only can I not find where this Christ child is, but I will execute every child that would fit the, the, the parameters of possibly being that child. And there's a haunting hymn that's called the Coventry Carol. It was written in the 16th century. And it's a hymn that's written from the voice of the mothers who are weeping over the death and the murder of their children, their sons. It is unsettling. There's a reason we don't put Herod in the story. There's a reason we don't want to, because we want Christmas to be about light and bright and fun and thankful and joyful, and we want all of this wonderful kind of whitewashed Christmas that we create. And Herod, you, you can't whitewash this. You can't make this. There's no, no way to make this a, a fun part of the story. It's devastating if we really think about it. And I think it's all the more reason why that we need to keep Herod in the story. It's not a prime thing. I'm certainly not advocating we have kids put him in their pageants. But he reminds us of the truth and the messiness. And I know messy is such a, a, a soft word for such a vile person. But he reminds us of the world that Jesus came to save. Wasn't clean and neat and always joyful and happy. It was dark and sometimes evil. And yet God steps into that. God didn't make it all, you know, he, didn't, he didn't make it all better. He didn't, he didn't remove all the, the ugliness and then say, okay, now I'm gonna come. He stepped into that. Even into Herod's world where where a king can can cause the innocent death of countless children and the heartbreak of of families that we can't even begin to understand and, and questions we don't have answers to and, and, and the whys and, and the understanding the, the, the reality of evil in this world. We don't have satisfactory answers to all of that. But Herod reminds us God stepped into it anyway. God chose. This is the world he chose to redeem. This is the world that, that, that would make a family refugees in Egypt that would, that, would, that would kill even their own children because they were a threat. This is the world he came to save. And, and, and that matters because there's darkness in all of us that we don't want to name. Not that kind of darkness, heaven forbid. But there's parts of us that we don't want other people to know. There's parts of us we wish God didn't even know. We have this tendency to say, how could you care about me? How could you step into my life? It is so ugly and so messy and so not what you want it to be, Lord. God said, I stepped into this. I can step into your life too. That truth becomes our hope. That truth becomes powerful for us in those dark places we don't want anyone else to know about. God is willing to step into that, to begin to change, not to leave it as it is, 
but to change it, to be at work in and through it. Our world is ugly and it's messy. And as we look into a new year, it's, it's, it's scary sometimes. I know this isn't the bright, fluffy New Year's Day sermon we sometimes expect. But it's, it's reality. I, I got up this morning, sat down like I always do on a Sunday morning to have some time of prayer and review. Turned on the computer. I've talked about this before, I, and I usually check the headlines. There was about six or seven s- stories that were on the headline page of the site I go to. And I started to just take note of the nature of the stories. Very first story this morning, 39 people dead in Istanbul, the victim of terrorism. I don't even know the details. I just saw the headline this morning. 39 people dead. Third story, six people dead in a plane crash up in the Cleveland area, the Lake Erie area. Fifth story was about an Uber driver who became aware of a young girl who was in her car, in his car, with two other women that he suspected was the victim of sex trafficking. And he called the authorities, and she was rescued from a situation where she was being prostituted out. 16 years old, sex trafficking. You know where that was? Sacramento, California. It's not another part of the world. It's not another country. That's not some, some place that we think, well, that happens there. That's our, our backyard. That's our country. And that's happening. I mean, there is profound darkness. There is profound evil in the world. And God steps into it. And God engages it. And God seeks to transform it and change it and redeem it and make something beautiful even in that darkness. The light that's come into the world and the dar- into a world of darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And that is profound hope for us. But it is also our challenge. We've got to engage the world with the love of Christ, even when it's hard and ugly and messy. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I just want to go, Lord, it's all yours. I, I don't know what to do here. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of seeing it. I'm tired of re- I want to kind of, I want to withdraw. I want to build walls. That's what I want to do. Years ago, we were connected with some, some folks, relationally new uh, Christians, who were part of a community of faith in which they just walled off. This wasn't some weird cult or something. They just... They, they kind of built their own community and they withdrew from the rest of the world because they didn't want to be contaminated by it. They didn't want to be affected by it. And I understand that. I, I get that mentality sometimes. The problem is, and it even bothered me then as a child, that's not what Jesus did. Jesus stepped into it. Jesus got into the, the mud, if you will, to redeem the lost and the broken and the hurting, to, to be the light in the world of darkness. That's what we're called to do. It's just, it's just tempting sometimes just to want to retreat and just, just not get our hands dirty. That's not the way God does it. He steps into worlds filled with Herods, filled with, with things that we can't explain, but he engages because that's who he is. And he seeks to redeem it and change it, to love it, um, to, to, to transform it. That's what he does in our lives. That's our good news. That's our good news, but it's also our challenge into this world. You know, Herod needs to be a part of the story. As much as we don't want him to be a part of the story, he needs to be a part of the story because he reminds us of the scope of the world Jesus stepped into and the world that we're called to serve and love. So we hear the good news of the story of Christmas, but hear the challenge to engage, to engage the world. And when I say that, I just mean love. 
share, shine, and, and give. That's the way of Christ. God did it to us, for us, and he seeks to do it through us. Amen? Let's pray. Loving God, we, uh, we are challenged by this part of the story. It's, it's a part we just assume isn't there. There's questions we can't answer. There's heartbreak that is beyond comprehension. And it reveals the darkness of a world where we are so often the furthest thing from what you've created us and called us to be. And yet that's where you stepped into human history. That's where we find the power of your love and the, the joy of your coming and the, the hope of your story. And it is our hope and you become our strength that we would live that same love and engage the world with that same passion that you showed in Jesus. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us in this new year to look for the places you'd have us step into to be your love, to be your grace, to be your hope. We pray it in the name of the holy name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.